Hello and welcome to the very first edition of the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Martin Grossman, and I'm honored to be joined here today by my other host and good friend, Will Algren. Will, how you holding up? I'm holding up okay, Martin. I've been uh, watching the soccer world fall apart over the past 24 hours. It's been fascinating, and I'm kind of terrified to see what comes next. <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. Um, I think that today we have an unbelievable amount of things to cover, but first, I want to provide everybody who's listening a little bit of context, a little bit of background as to who we are, kind of what we're doing here, since for us, that's obviously natural to understand, but maybe it's less intuitive for all of you. So I I think I'll go back and, and just mention, so, so Will and I met each other uh, back in high school, and we, from that point and forward, I think that we've always had conversations about this sport. Uh, we split up after high school and went to different places, but we always kind of kept in touch. And we always, I think, enjoyed pushing each other's buttons, uh, pushing each other's boundaries when it came to kind of the topics that we were discussing and the questions we were trying to answer. And so I think if I look back at this summer, back in, I think, July, June or July, um, I, in the midst of this COVID-19 quarantine, I, I think I felt the need to, to do something with the amount of like inquietude that I was feeling. I had a lot of things to think about and I think I wanted to put them somewhere. And so I, I founded this blog called Touchline Theory back, I believe in July. Um, and I think that the goal for Touchline Theory from its beginning was basically to, to pose questions that I felt that no one was really asking and to do my best to discuss them and try to answer them. And I think the, the idea behind it was mostly to address things that weren't conventional, to try to be a little bit disagreeable and and to really kind of challenge conventional wisdom. And, and I think I, I wrote for that for a couple of months. It's been now nine months since I began. And all the while I've kind of chatted with, with Will about different things here and there. And so I think that at this current point in time, uh, maybe about a couple months ago, we started talking about starting a podcast and starting something where we could just kind of more informally chat about things. And I think that we were kind of building up to it gradually. And then just a day or two ago, we seemed to have had this like earthquake within the soccer world that, that pertains to the topic that we'll be discussing today that I'm sure we'll get into very shortly. And so I think that what our plan is, is, is to get to know whoever is listening over the course of the next however long we do this. Um, but today we're going to be chatting about something that I think is very controversial and something that will hopefully be a springboard for us in the future. Um, I think in terms of additional background, we have no idea how we really want to structure things quite yet. I think that we're trying to figure out a balance between structure and fluidity. And I think that we've both kind of created our separate outlines for what the things that we want to talk about. And so I think we're excited to to discuss those things with you today. Yeah, just just reiterating, and this is very ahead of schedule. You know, this is uh, not going to be a perfect podcast. So to the one or two people who listen, you know, don't expect too much. <laughs> but uh, it feels like something we just have to talk about. And, you know, there's there's just so much to say about it. It's such a broad topic. And I feel like, you know, it would be a good way to start just to get some things out there, just to start a discussion. Because I'm sure this is something that is going to develop massively over the next couple of days, next few weeks. And 
you know, I'm just really interested to see where it goes. Um, so, yeah, Sounds I good. think it's it's time to just get right into it. So Alrighty. for anyone who doesn't follow soccer, who has been living under a rock for the past couple of days, I just want to give a quick little overview of what's happened. So a group of 12 clubs, you know, these are some of the top clubs in Europe, some of the most expensive, most valuable clubs in Europe. It's six from England, which are Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Tottenham, and Arsenal. Uh, the big three from Spain, you got Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, and then Juventus, Inter, and AC Milan. Right, And what they're pretty much doing is starting their own competition outside of the existing UEFA football structure that is supposed to kind of replace the Champions League or be an alternative to it. And what's the Champions League, Will? Uh, the Champions League is a big European club competition. It's made up of all the top teams in Europe. Well, not all the top teams, but whoever you know finishes in the top four in the better leagues or whoever finishes first in the smaller leagues, they all get put into this 32-team tournament. It goes on in the middle of the week over the course of the regular season, and at the end there's a big playoff round, and whoever wins is generally regarded as you know, the best club in Europe. Right? It's the top tier of competition. It's generally seen as being better than the leagues that make it up. It's a, it's a big deal. It's the highest stage, uh, but not anymore. You know, this is now going to be the new highest stage. And there's going to be 20 teams in total once this gets running. So we have the 12 that have already made it, and there will be three more founders. So these 15 clubs out of these 20 are founders. And the one really terrible thing about this proposal is that none of those 15 clubs can ever be relegated. They're all in the league forever to stay, no matter how bad they get or how bad they currently are, like Arsenal. They're in the league and nothing will change that. And, you know, but they are keeping it somewhat open uh, with the other five teams, which will be annual qualifiers that are invited by, by these clubs that can participate in the tournament as well you know, at their discretion. Um, I, I want to make a quick comment on the fact that, you know, Will's already taken a jab at Arsenal, and I think we'll be taking plenty of jabs throughout the course of this podcast. But uh, as, a, as a quick kind of disclaimer, I think that it's important to note that we're not here to, to, to take any necessary, take any sides, I think. And I think that, you know, we can we can have an entire podcast where we discuss kind of what Arsenal is, should be, uh, has represented. Um, I, but I think that at the end of the day, the the broader picture here is that there's an interesting kind of snapshot of clubs that are being taken at this point in time that may or may not be reflective of who they were in the past, who they are right now, or who they might be in the future. And I think that that's kind of like one of the core topics that we probably are going to dive into today is like this idea of, you know, the group here that we're talking about is, is, is painfully subjective. Well, by some metrics it is, you know, by metrics like that, you know, more traditional soccer metrics, you know, like, Oh, who has the most history? You know, you could say, Oh, there's lots of teams that should have been in this that have more history than a Tottenham or a Manchester city. You know, if you look at who's the best team, right? There's a lot of teams that could have been in this that are probably better than AC Milan, than an Arsenal right now. But what these teams all have in common 
is I just looked this up before the podcast. All 12 of these teams are among the 16 most valuable football clubs in the world in terms of money. And the teams in the top 16 that are missing are Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, PSG, and Everton. And I would guess that the three extra founders they're looking for are probably going to be drawn from those three clubs. So it's very clear what the criteria for being allowed into this competition is. Definitely. And I think we're, we're, we're going to dive into that in a little bit. I think there, the economics of all of this is very interesting. I know that um, Florentino Perez was on El Chiringuito earlier today with an interview that I think a lot of people were watching where he kind of cited his high level motives for why this is being pushed forward. And a lot of them were very deeply ingrained in finances, right? And it's this idea of trickle down economics. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that later and the effect this might have on player transfers and, and all of that. Um, but I think before, before we kind of get into the meat and potatoes, the other thing that I do want to mention here is the fact that Will and I are both fans of clubs that are in fact included in this invite. Um, mm. I'm, I, I'm sure we'll, you know, get to know each other and by each other, I mean ourselves and whatever listeners we're lucky to have over the course of the future episodes that we have. But I'm a, I've been a Barcelona fan for my entire life. Will supports which team? Uh, Liverpool also for pretty much my entire life. So, so you know, at the end of the day, and, and we, I think I also have another kind of allegiance, but we'll talk about that more later. And I think that at the end of the day, there is a certain bias that we definitely recognize um, as we discuss these things, because as we try to be fair, I think, and as we try to present arguments that support both sides of this and try to really understand what's going on, it's important for everybody that's listening to understand that, yes, we are speaking as people who, if this goes through, may be watching our teams play in this clash of Titans, you know, football bonanza. And so that is certainly something that may skew our opinions, but we want to get that off of our chests. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it makes it uh, you know, much easier to accept, you know, theoretically, even if I'm not really accepting of it right now, you know, down the road, if my team's going to be in it every year, you know, versus if, you know, I was a West Ham fan or something and my team's not in it, then yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a bit more open to this idea. All right. Um, well, cool. Yeah. So, Will, where, where do we want to start? I think there's there's a, a ton to get into. I know we I, I've shared with you kind of my outline. I have a bunch of tiny little points maybe to pepper in as color commentary, but uh, is there somewhere that you'd like to kind of begin our discussion on? Well, where I'd like to begin is kind of with the reaction to this, because that's what's really surprised me the most. Because I'm going to be honest, I wasn't all that surprised by the news of this coming out, right? I may be surprised at how sudden it was, but it's been in the works for a long time, right? This is something that I think with things like Project Big Picture a few months ago, you could see was coming, right? And, and I'm not I, surprised. Oh, go ahead. I, I think that like one of the one of the big things for me too is just, yeah, I was surprised that people were surprised. You know, it seemed as yeah. though there were a lot of people who had this kind of idea that, you know, their club stood for something more, right? And I think that that is something that's maybe been kind of unveiled a little bit with all of this too, is that it, it's this really biting reality where you have a lot of clubs. We can take the two that we support, for instance, with you'll never walk alone as being the motto for one and Mescun Club for another, where these there's kind of like this ethos of 
community and 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 maybe you know alluding to grassroots something right and and all of a sudden now you've got this kind of event that everybody i think is chalking up as a cash grab that puts those things into question and i think that that's hard for people to to deal with if they haven't been kind of painfully aware of the fact that money really is the driver in all of this and has been for a very long time yeah it has been for a very long time that's my main point. It's like, I, I completely understand why people are so upset about this. And like, I, I want to add a disclaimer that like, I am very upset about this, right? I, I hate almost everything about this competition. I think it's representative <laughs> of everything that's bad about modern football. I think no relegation is an absolute joke, you know? And, but I have to put that disclaimer because pretty much everything I say for the rest of this episode is going to sound like I'm supporting this. And it's going to sound like I'm trying to make some justification for it. And I, I want to be very clear. This is not something I want to happen. But, you know, like Martin said at the beginning, this, this is a podcast where we're going to try and deliver different opinions to what's being said by, you know, most people in the mainstream. And so far, the only opinion I have seen in response to this has been, you know, whether it's from a football federation or a pundit on TV or an individual fan, you know, across the board, it has been just all caps screaming football is dead. Right. And, and I think that it, it, it's it's so interesting to me because I think a really poignant example of all of this, too, is like Atletico Madrid. Right. I think is a very, very specific example of a club that I think has been long characterized by what for the, this, the Spanish translation basically is this this feeling of, of rebellion. It's this, this kind of environment of, of, it's like a club that has built been built upon the idea of the people coming together and fighting for something. Right. And I think that if you look at their rivalry with Real Madrid over the course of many years, that has been largely founded on, you know, one club being that of wealth and establishment and the other being that of working class of gritty hard workers. And it's very reflective in who they sign and how they play. Right. You have Atletico on the one hand who like is extremely defensively minded and Simeone has been obviously criticized for years, I think, for how negative his football tactics are. And on the other hand, you have kind of like this Galacticos mentality where it's a lot of glamour. It's a lot of, you know, bringing in Figo and bringing in Beckham and bringing in Ronaldo and all of these figureheads. Right. And so you have these two contrasting ideologies and then you have one being Atletico who is so deeply ingrained in this idea that, you know, this is. This is what defines us. And then suddenly today, you see them both kind of upheld on the same podium. And I think that that is something, for instance, that was very, very jarring for a lot of Atletico supporters and probably kind of is the foundation of that knee-jerk reaction that I think you're talking about, where people are just saying, you know, this is not who we are and, and disowning what has happened. I agree. And I, you know, as a Liverpool fan, it's maybe not quite to the same degree as Atletico, you know, having that club identity that's reflected in how we play so much but i think there is still some of that i think there's been you know a very big media narrative of kind of been liverpool doing things the right way or something compared to city over the past few years or building a team themselves right and i mean first of all like that's kind of true but it's also kind of not like liverpool spend a lot of money you know they they buy big name players to compete with city they do a lot of the same stuff that City does. You know, they do some things better, and I accept that. But I, I just think it's become too much of a morality thing, right? This whole thing. And 
I, I don't I don't feel betrayed by Liverpool. I don't feel like they've taken like the moral standing that this club has and just thrown it away yesterday. You know, because I don't think that moral standing was really there before yesterday. Right. I think that's kind of the key thing where like I see a, a lot of on, on Twitter right now or just in the general kind of internet space, I see a lot of virtue signaling. Right. So yeah. virtue signaling for those that you know, maybe are unfamiliar with the term is this idea of like kind of acting like you care about something that's like, yeah, morally high ground, I would say. And I think that there are a lot of people that do, but there's, it's also very easy to kind of give into this bandwagon and like mob mentality. And I think that what I've seen a lot of, you know, is fans, you know, I see a lot of fans of top clubs that are kind of online right now saying like, they're out, you know, like, oh, if we go to a super league format, I'm out. I'm not a fan of this club anymore. I can't support this. And I guess the question that I would kind of pose to that, and and maybe it's it it, it kind of stinks that I'm asking you and you're kind of in at the moment. But if you were somebody, for instance, who was saying, you know, this is the end. I football is dead. I'm not going to support Liverpool. I'm done with Liverpool. If they go into this into this ESL, if they win the ESL, I don't care. I won't be watching. My question is basically like, were you here? originally because of how much you loved the fairness of the competition because of how much you enjoyed like the you know how equal it was and the fact that you know Sheffield United gets to come up and compete and that, and that Leicester gets to win the league and that Norwich can oscillate between relegation and being in the prem year after year or, or were you here because you loved the winning and were, were you here because you loved the moments in which or you fell in love in, with the moments in which your team scored and beat the top competition mm -hmm. And my question is, what did you what did you fall in love with? Because I see a lot of people that I think are suggesting the former, but really subscribe to the latter. I, yeah, and you know, I will be very open about this. You know, I started watching soccer seriously when I was like nine, ten years old, right? And at that age, you're you're not thinking about the fairness of the competition, right? You know, as an American who's like just getting really exposed to international soccer for the first time, I'm thinking about like, oh, like which players look good, or like who's winning a lot right now, or like what what uh, team is wearing a, my favorite color shirt, right? And then, you know, that grows over time where after I start watching Liverpool games, I get more and more invested in the players, right? But and I get more and more invested in the team and how they're doing, but it's all still stuff that's on the pitch, right? I, I would never consider myself someone who supported Liverpool, you know, for the way they were run off the field, right? And maybe... <laughs> And I'm not going to say I've never, you know, when I'm talking to Martin, been like, oh, how does it feel being a fan of a big oil oil club, right? But it's just it's just trying to score points, you know? I don't really care. And, and for, context, for context there, I the other club that I alluded to previously that I subscribed to is, in fact, Manchester City, the oil club of all oil clubs. And I think yeah. that as a, you know, in my defense, because that's, I think, kind of like a criminal act for many people when they hear that, you know, they're like, oh, Manchester City. You know, what could you possibly have that ties you to that club? And I think that similar to Will, you know, I started watching soccer when I was young-ish. Um, my, my family is from Buenos Aires, Argentina. So we have some sort of bloodline connection to several players that are playing in Europe. And so the Barcelona connection, I think, was forged very early on. But the Manchester City one, in a similar vein, I was probably about 12 years old um, and had a bunch of friends that were watching the English Premier League. And I think at that point, I realized that not that many, the audience for Spanish La Liga competition was not that developed in my friend circle. And so that, I think, encouraged me to kind of pick a team. And that's that's a real thing for a lot of people that are outside of the nations in which these 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 clubs are, 
you know, organized yeah. and, and and really on the on the ground. And it's it's going to become, I think, just a more common thing as time goes on, because I mean, they, people always talk about, you know, the growth of football. You know, uh, Florentino Perez in his interview today spent a lot of time talking about the growth of football. And like, if you think about where new fans are going to come from, it's mostly from people who have no previous exposure and no family ties to football, right? You know, like Derek 32 from, you know, Scunthorpe is not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, you know what, it's time to start following football. I'm going to be a Scunthorpe fan. Right. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I what, think what's, oh, I'm going to go ahead here. But um, I think, you know, what's going to happen is it's going to be fans in, you know, nations that don't have that exposure to football right now. You know, so me being in a, an American kid getting exposed to international soccer for the first time, you know, that's going to be the same situation that kids in India and China are going to be having as things develop in the years to come. You know, it's going to be the starting from scratch. And picking a team, you know, just based on what's being shown, you know, and they're going to pick these teams based on something. And then they'll they'll build these narratives around it about, oh, you'll never walk alone. And, oh, we're the people's club. Right. And they'll use that to feel a bit better. But at the end of the day, like it's just picking a soccer team, man. And I, I really don't think that if you just look at like a wide view, take every Liverpool fan, every Manchester United fan in the world you're not going to be able to draw like any moral conclusions about those two groups. It's just a bunch of random people thrown in watching a soccer team. Right. And I think that it's attacking onto that, right? Like one of the things that was cited today, I think pretty heavily, Gary Neville had an interview that was, um, he was expressing some pretty staunch opinions against all of this. And I think I have a lot of respect for him, obviously standing up early on and, and taking a stand on something that he really felt passionately about. And I think he spoke very eloquently one of the things that I found that he said that I found pretty ironic was he said something to the effect of, <clears throat> this is like a criminal act against football in this country, in this country. And so when he said that, I think one thing that I found pretty intriguing, right, is like a lot of what we're seeing here high level is we see, if we can make an analogy, we see a group of people, a group of kids that were invited to a birthday party. All right. And it's a cool birthday party to get invited to because all the cool kids are going to this birthday party. And there's a lot of kids who didn't get invited to that birthday party. Okay. That's plain and simple how I'm kind of visualizing this, where it's like, there's an invite that was sent out somewhere included somewhere. And so on the one hand, what you see is you see the kids that basically got invited to the birthday party. And they're like, okay, cool. Like we're going to go to the birthday party. Uh, and they all basically together in this very dystopian way, announced on Twitter or Facebook and all their social media platforms at the same exact time, we're going to the birthday party. And everybody in the entire world basically came together and said, well, you know what? This is ridiculous. We didn't get invited to the birthday party. And what you're going to see is this, to me, I think very, very amusing thing where every single club today that wasn't invited to that birthday party came out with a statement against the birthday party. And I think that to a certain degree, I think that it's probably to kind of create this wave of, you know, dissociation and we don't support this. But at the end of the day, the people that are creating the birthday party and those that are in the birthday party and going to go, they don't really care if those that never got invited to the party are announcing that they are, in fact, not going. Yeah, they're they're above all that. And that's something I want to get into, too. It's like, I think these teams hold all of the power right now. Uh, pa power in what sense just uh i mean in this debate with fifa and uefa you know um it's kind of developed over the past days that you know the response from uefa and fifa and the governing bodies has been i mean incredibly negative to this they're saying 
it's a disgrace, but you know, on a more material side, they're threatening you know, the two main things they're doing is they're threatening to sue the Super League clubs for I think sixty billion, which is a whole lot of money. <laughs> but uh, perhaps more immediately, uh, they're threatening banning all of these players and teams from every other competition. So if you're if you're in the Super League, then you wouldn't be allowed to compete in the Premier League. You know, on the weekends. If you are on a Super League team, then you're not allowed in international competitions. Not allowed in the World Cup. And I look at these threats, and I'm just like they're not really going to go through with this stuff, are they? And I think that that's, I think there's a lot to get into there. I think that one um, kind of, one thing that I've seen from here too, is it's almost like this weird, like game theory problem where you have a bunch of teams that are now in, right? They're this new in crowd. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're on a, on a, you know, on a pirate ship and, and Papa Flo is the captain of this pirate ship. I'm you know? loving these analogies, Martin. <laughs> and very illustrative. And so you have, you know, like the this 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 boat, and all of these like you know special pirates got pulled onto the boat. <laughs> You're gonna have to forgive me for this analogy, but basically, what's happening, right? It's it's this game theory problem where everybody kind of suddenly everybody knows that there's this boat, and they're all kind of like, okay, crap, like. There's a lot of backlash here. This is a PR nightmare. We're getting a lot of like threats. Like you're saying, oh, none of our players will be able to compete in the World Cup. The World Cup is something that cements just about any player's legacy outside of their club career. It's it's what everyone grows up dreaming of playing in, right? Exactly. It's, it's a storied thing. Yeah. And so you have this thing that's inextricably linked with like childhood dreams that's being threatened from the players. The players have no say in it, right? So you have the players on the boat, you have the staff on the boat, you have all the facilities on the boat, everything. <laughs> And then you just have these these owners who've been talking in secret for the last two years who basically just said, okay, nobody jump. Nobody get off this boat. We're all on this boat together. And it's this weird problem where it's like, if nobody jumps, I don't think anybody can do anything about it. But as soon as one club says, you know what, I can't go forth with this, then I think you see this domino effect. And it's almost like who <sighs> jumps first? If I don't, e I don't even know if that's true, Martin. Because I think it, de it depends who the domino is, right? Like if, if you know, Florentino Perez comes out tomorrow and says, this was all a terrible mistake, like we're not doing this, then yeah, the thing's probably going to crumble. But the clubs I've seen that are thinking about leaving are Chelsea and City. And like Chelsea and City are very big clubs, don't get me wrong. But I mean, in terms of the money they're going to bring in and the fans they're going to bring in and what they really mean to this league, I mean, the big draws from England in those regard, you know, historically are United, Liverpool, Arsenal, right? None of which are, have been talking about leaving, all of which have uh, their owners as co-chairs or whatever the word is that they're using that are really, really involved in this. And I think if City and Chelsea leave tomorrow, this still works. I don't think and they're think, enough to stop it. I think what happens then too is like, what's the speed with which they replace them, right? Like if, if those two leave and immediately two new clubs are brought aboard the boat. I think nobody bats an eye yeah. realistically. And and so I think that there's an interesting kind of dynamic here with like, we're going to, and we're going to see this unfold over the next couple of days and weeks, I think with regards to the teams and if they kind of stay, you know, stay true to kind of the, the stance that they've announced. But I think I want to go back really, really quickly to the Gary Neville comment about criminal act against football in this country, because I think you alluded to it earlier that the, the expansion of football and one of the main kind of ideas behind this is like all about TV rights and all about having more people across the world to see the sport and be exposed to the sport. And I think that, you know, when we talk about 
this birthday party and P and, and kids that were invited and kids that weren't, you end up kind of creating what's what I kind of perceive as like an in crowd and an out crowd. Right. And I think that when, I think there's an interesting point of like irony where a lot of these clubs, a lot of these people that are very, very upset about this are people that are maybe like native to the places in which these games are played. Right. So it's a lot of people that are Manchester United fans who live in Manchester. Absolutely. People, yeah. people that like get the chance to go to the pub riot with the fans go to the stadium right and i think that one thing to consider there is like if you look at everybody else in the entire world that consumes this product that is soccer right they are effectively outsiders in our previous in our prior to esl format right where it's like europe and you know if you live in the city of barcelona you can be a socio if you're a fan for enough time and you can be a part of the club and you can attend everything and you can drape the colors around you and just be there and really, really kind of buy into the culture. You can buy into the Catalonian, yeah. like, the Catalan independence movement, all these things that everybody everywhere else cannot do. And if you take a club like Barcelona, I don't have the statistic in front of me, but the amount of fandom that exists outside of that very core in Spain very likely supersedes the fandom that exists within it. It, and it so undoubtedly I, does. I, I think especially, I mean, if you look at Liverpool statistics, I mean, Liverpool have more fans in Asia and Africa than they do in England. You know, it's it's and, not close. And so what I think is interesting, right, is like these, these people are in some way um, claiming this thing to be theirs, right? For, mm -hmm. for people that live in a certain place where the, where the team is theirs, they claim it to be theirs. And so they are the insiders in a sense. And everybody mm -hmm. else around the world, Americans, people in Asia, people in, in the Middle East that often are, are have, there's a certain taboo with those fans, right? I, I think that they're regarded as outsiders. And so the uh, irony yeah. that I see with this is like Gary Neville saying, this is a criminal act against football in this country. I think that what that kind of very inadvertently but blatantly states is like, this is this group of people who used to be insiders, who a lot of which now are becoming outsiders. And that shift is super jarring, right? Whenever you take this thing that used to be theirs, the people of Manchester, yeah. the people of wherever, and you basically say, we're going to put it in a format that essentially mobilizes it and makes it extremely accessible, Clash of the Titans, you know, quasi-closed league format, uh, accessible to the rest of the world, something that tailors to people that aren't here. I think yeah. that they react very, very harshly. And I think there's just an interesting question there where it's like, it's a criminal act against football in this country. You know, this is our club. This is the history is here in the town, in the city that we grew up in. The question just kind of becomes, you know, if, if there's been so many comments about football is for the people all over everywhere. I've yeah. just seen football is for the people. Who are those people? Is it for the people of Manchester? Is it for the people that have followed that club who have nothing to no true tie to that club besides the fact that they started watching when they were young and they know the name of every player that's been in the roster for the last 20 years. Who, what people are we, are we talking about? Because football is for the people in that sense runs the risk of just talking about one very, very, very small group. And that is not the picture. That is not the full picture. I completely agree. And I mean, it is a very small group, but it's a very important group, you know, and that's, that's really the lifeblood, you know, of any football team. This, the soul of them is that, you know, that local fan group that's really there, that's, you know, really lives and breathes the club that's, you know, causing riots and Oh man, I cursed first time. I knew I wasn't going to avoid it.
Will and I had a discussion about whether or not we would allow this yeah. this podcast to be explicit or not. And I think that we we run the risk of of having the podcast banned in certain places if we yeah. put the E tag onto it. So I think we'll likely we'll likely edit that out in post. I think that's gonna be our new favorite um saying. Yeah, we edit have to make sure our product appeals to those uh, Indian and Asian audiences. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that the main thing to look at here, right, is like for me, there's an interesting philosophical dilemma with, you know, who are those people? Who constitutes yeah. your club and where do you draw the dividing line between the in crowd and the out crowd? Yeah, and, and getting back to what I was saying before I uh, had that terrible mistake is <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, if you if you want to be like you know, what, what I guess people in England would call like a true fan of a team, you know, that kind of live and die fan. And you can still get that, you know, in the lower leagues, right? And I've seen a lot of response has been people saying they're going to do that. You know, people are like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go watch my local league team because, you know, it means something and it's honest and it's not just about money. And that that's great. Like, I, I think that's a great reaction to this. I think that's a great, you know, screw you to the whole direction that modern football is taking. But I would also say if that's your attitude, you should have been watching non-league a long time ago because, you know, you, you, you said that people, you know, people think like, Oh, Manchester United is our club. It's for the people. It, it hasn't been for a long time, right? It's, it's gotten too big for that. Right. I mean, these clubs are multi-billion dollar companies now. And they represent something to people across the world, and they have grown much, much larger than that local scene, right? And you know, and that's come with its benefits. You know, for some clubs, uh, you know, most of the clubs that are in the Super League, they've been able to see them be, be very successful over the past couple decades, win a lot of trophies. But the price for that is that the club grows into something it wasn't before, right? And the club is owned by billionaires. And I saw a comment today before the Liverpool Leeds game from a, from a Liverpool fan. He was disgusted about this whole thing. And he said, like, today has really made it clear that our club is owned by billionaires who don't care about the common fan. And I'm like, today. Yeah. Like, today has made it owned, clear. This club has been owned by billionaires who don't care about the common fan for 10 years. And before that, it was owned by different billionaires who didn't care about the common fan. Like, this has been happening. You know, money is all that football is about at the very top level now, right? That's, that's just the way it's going to be with an industry this big. Right? I think that that's one of the things, too, that I think a lot of people are kind of wondering at this current point in time is like what are the standards that we are upholding for ourselves right like and i think anytime that anything challenges your core and really really hits you in a place where you start to kind of reevaluate what the significance of something is i think that's when people kind of are forced to open their eyes and i think that <clears throat> this this week has certainly done that for a lot of people and it's it's definitely very easy to kind of look around and be like i think you and i agree i'm surprised that people are surprised you know i think that's a sentiment that maybe a, a small collection of people feel right now yeah but at the same time you have to also consider the fact that these owners have been kind of creating this product and selling it and they sell it in a way that's very political that's very salesman like that's yeah. very much you know trying to feed somebody something that they think is good for them 
And I think that that's disingenuous and maybe something that for those that have been fed that and have enjoyed it and are now kind of like, whoa, look at who's been feeding me. Maybe that's just an honest reaction where that's just maybe a sad reality that we're coming to terms with. Maybe, but I don't know. I mean, if it was like 90% of people saying, oh, football's dead and another 10 being like, yeah, this I, I saw this coming, then yeah, I'd probably accept that explanation. But I've seen like 100% have say like this is shocking and football is it i haven't seen anyone really be like yeah i'm not that surprised by this and I, I think what's really dangerous about this whole situation i mean this this is such a you know ugly sudden existential threat that what i think people shouldn't do is just shoot this down you know say this is disgusting this is not the way i want football to go you know say no to this do whatever you have to do protest it gets shut down and then just go back to the UEFA Champions League and the way we've been doing things the past 20 years. Because I hate to say it, but if we continue on our current path, we're going to end up with a Super League in 10, 15 years anyway. I so, really believe that. So I want to hear kind of what your thoughts on that. Because one of the notes that I definitely had here was basically the state of the current UCL. Um, something that I think that I, as a Barca fan who has suffered uh, for the last couple of years, I still quite enjoy and I think I, I was maybe actually taken aback by how much dissatisfaction I was seeing online with people basically expressing that, you know, the Champions League is dead and that now obviously UEFA has put out this, proposed this new Champions League format. What, what are your thoughts on just like, you know, the disdain that you have for the current style of, of that tournament? And, and why is this something that you feel, you know, hey, this change maybe isn't so bad? Well, I just want to say first, to put in perspective, um, a miserable past few years for a Barcelona fan is still your team making the knockout rounds every single season. I totally. Think. Yep. Uh, but yeah, getting into the new Champions League format, which this is fascinating, was actually supposed to come out the exact same day as the Super League stuff and ended up getting kind of thrown to the side. I don't think they've officially ratified it yet because of this. The new format of the Champions League is really bad. And I think, it's a, I think it's a big step towards this direction that the Super League took. Okay, okay. So, but first, okay, we'll get into that. I think first I'm curious to hear more though about like what you think is not so good about the current thing and why the current trajectory is leading us down a path that might end up being the same exact thing that we're seeing right now, just accelerated. Yeah. Well, the, the trend of the Champions League in recent seasons has been to give more spots to bigger leagues, right? I think this just a few years ago now, they officially gave that fourth spot to England. They gave a fourth spot to Italy, and they took those spots away from, you know, the 13th or 14th best leagues in Europe, which previously, if you won, you'd qualify straight in. Now you go into a playoff of the Europa League or something. Okay, but, but this has been happening. It, it's consistently been happening. And the big result of this is you've got way less different champions, way less variety than you had before. Hmm. I mean, if you go back and look, I mean, in the past 10 years, I think there's been one, maybe two teams from outside the top five leagues that have made it to the semifinals of the Champions League. And that's a Back back in the 80s and 90s, I mean, if you look at the winners, there's there's teams from all sorts of different countries that were able to compete and regularly uh, get to the top in this league, and that's not really the case anymore. And so I think like this... a lot of that, a lot of that is down to just other financial areas 
and uh, kind of how those leagues have suffered. But I think a lot of it is also down to UEFA making a very concerted effort to make sure that we get these big teams, we get these big players into the knockout rounds, into the big games, you know, because that's what you want. You don't want a semifinal between Ajax and Krasnodar, right? You want a semifinal between PSG and Man City that everyone's going to tune in and watch. Hmm. I think that's interesting. I think... I think that perhaps the gradual nature of that transition of where maybe even somebody like myself wasn't necessarily super aware of the fact that there was more of this kind of centralizing shift happening. I think that that was probably something that was less jarring to consume and something that maybe was done deliberately and something that they, the, the organizers probably thought to themselves, well, if we do, you know, one a year, one spot trade a year or one every other year, no one will notice. And clearly I, I for instance, haven't. For sure. And they're also very smart. They they even go back the other way sometimes. And, you know, they'll say, oh, well, this year we'll give a spot back to the smaller leagues. But the overall trend is very clear that it's going towards more and more teams from big leagues and everyone else can try their luck in playoffs or go to the Europa League or whatever the third tier competition is now beneath the Europa League. Right? I, I think that's that's an interesting kind of point where this this sudden jolt seems to have been some group of people that were basically like, you know what, we're going here anyways. COVID crisis happened. Everybody in this group of 12 clubs lost millions upon millions of dollars. I think Florentino Perez, I don't want to misquote. I think he said $5 billion something. I don't, I don't quite remember the number. Yeah. It's, some it's something like that. Yeah, amount of money that, that was shared lost between all of these teams, right. Yeah. Over the course of this past single year. And so I think it's this idea of like, you know, he's been saying, he's been pushing a lot of this like salvar al football idea, which is to save the sport. Yeah. And I think that what's, what's just interesting about this um, is, is this kind of idea that the centralization is necessary for, for the trickle down to occur. And what I think is kind of a push here is Florentino Perez definitely feels as though, and I'm sure many others agree with him that there's a lot of money to be made here, right? We go back to the money conversation and there's a lot of money to be made because there's lots of people across the entire world that in his eyes, right? Maybe doesn't want to tune into Real Madrid versus Leganes, right? Yeah. They have no interest in that fixture. And mind you, that fixture also is draining for a club like Real Madrid that has high opportunity cost in when it comes to attending that right you go to a crappy field you maybe have to play copa del rey against a team that's in the third division one of your players gets their leg caught their cleat caught in a pothole on the field right you spend a lot of money to travel it's a lot of resources it's a lot of time and no one's watching those fixtures is yeah. kind of how he views that right and so i think that what you end up seeing is like you've got this situation where he his his viewpoint is like who wants to watch big teams beat up quote-unquote irrelevant ones right and, and so I think that he sees those kind of games as not lucrative. There's a lot of money up for grabs. And so the thing that he's been kind of pushing and what he said today in, in the interview was basically like, if the big teams maximize their profits, then they will buy players from the little teams and the little teams will get money. And I think that that's- Which is a, kind of how it works now, to and, be fair. And, <laughs> exactly. And I think that what's kind of interesting is it's like this gradual transition where I think UEFA probably kind of had the same idea where they were like, yeah, the more big teams we have, the more clash of the Titans yeah. fixtures we can have, the more people that are going to tune in, the more ad revenue we're going to get, the more money that's going to kind of get funneled into the sport. And if the big teams have money, then what's going to happen? They're going to poach players from other smaller clubs and money is going to trickle down. And I, I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, 
oh, we're doing this so money can trickle down versus, oh, we're doing this so we can steal everybody's players because we have an absurd amount of cash. Yeah. But I think that at the high level... It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Yeah. And um, yeah, get, getting into kind of UEFA's overall plan, I do want to talk about uh, their proposed changes to the Champions League here because, like I said, I mean, I think it's a pretty clear move in the same direction the Super League's taking. So the new Champions League would... I mean, the biggest change is currently the Champions League is set up into a group stage and there's eight groups of four teams that are drawn based on seeds. You know, you'll get one good team, one okay team, one kind of bad team, one team who maybe shouldn't really be in the Champions League. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you, That's you the diplomatic play, way of putting it. You play two matches against each team, six total, and then you go into knockouts, right? It's been that mm -hmm. way. I think since the Champions League started, actually, it's been the same format back in the 90s or whenever this began. And then something that I always found pretty interesting about that, too, is the third place team goes into this Europa League, which is kind of a mixture of the top mediocre clubs from around the world mixed with the loser's bracket of the top one. And yeah. that's another interesting dynamic. It is. And I actually really like that dynamic. And that's something I'll, I'll talk about more later about how I think maybe seeing more of that dynamic could be a good thing. But uh, getting back to the changes. So now, uh, if this goes through, then instead of having those eight groups, it would just be one massive pool of teams, right? All 32 are thrown in together. And you are given 10 matches based on a Swiss ranking system which, to be honest, I don't really understand, but it's used in chess, so it must be pretty good. It must be pretty good. It must be pretty good. And instead of six group stage games, you'll play 10. And then at the end of that, unless you're one of the very top teams, you have to play another two games after that to qualify for the playoffs. So to get to the round of 32, or the round of 16, now it takes 12 games instead of six exhausting exhausting unless you're a super club who can afford to buy two full squads of european quality and rotate them well that's a, then another question right like one of the things that came out this year with covid was this idea of having five substitutions and i wonder whether with a more congested fixture list the governing bodies would be forced into expanding rosters even further like imagine if, if soccer clubs in this current day and age had a roster they could carry of 40 players of, yeah. And just keep kept bumping up that tally, right? One of the things that I had I had written down here is like this idea of those subs, and I think that there's an interesting thing. There's an interesting debate right now about whether we should keep the five subs if we should go back to three subs when COVID is over, because I think five subs there was a whole moral debate about you know does it give these bigger clubs more of an advantage and so forth, and this is kind of the, ex the extrapolation of that. Yeah, I think it clearly gives the big clubs an advantage, you know. I mean, even aside from just squad considerations, you know, having more top-level players to be able to rotate in, it's just, I mean, luck, you know, tends to come in small spurts, right? And by lengthening this competition and by massively expanding the pool of teams that you play against, you know, it, I think it's all designed to remove some of that luck and remove some of those one-in-a-million underdog runs. Because, you know, before, teams teams would be drawn into a group with three other teams, right? You get a lucky group draw, you might be able to advance to the final 16 of the Champions League when you're not even close to being one of the best 16 teams in the world or in Europe. And, I mean, even more, I mean, I, I've looked back at a lot of Champions League group stages and nine points qualifies you a lot more times than you would think. So you have to win three games 
a three-game good run of form is good enough to get into the knockout rounds. And now we're yeah. 12. And I think I think that's actually a fascinating point that I hadn't considered is this idea that they're basically just lengthening it to increase the sample size and remove outliers. And part of, I think, what creates storylines in this sport are the outliers, are those moments where a team does a Cinderella, a Cinderella run, slips out of nowhere, and kind of like, you know, no one expected it and they did it, right? And I think yeah. that there was an interesting kind of test run with that when COVID struck and they tried to complete the Champions League and they did like the one-off elimination fixtures. And I actually quite enjoyed them because it basically said you cannot rely on the second match to fix what you've done in this game. And instead now you're given one chance. It is a single elimination match. And it I think it increased the amount of randomness and the amount of, ex, you know, I think that a lot of teams that are good will always, always try to put as much as they can within their own control. Right. I think that's something that as a good team, you should always strive. I think as, as from a coaching perspective, you should always try to achieve a predetermined result. You should control as many variables as possible such that you know what is going to happen because you have your finger on all the knobs. And I think that what this ends up doing is it says, you know what, you can afford to mess up because the better teams are going to over the long run are going to squash those that aren't as good. Yeah. And I think that that's maybe disconcerting. And one, one other thing about, uh, affording to mess up is there is also provision in these new Champions League guidelines that would allow, uh, I think, some extra spots in the competition to the highest ranked teams that did not qualify. So that's pretty much an, okay, Juventus, you messed it up this year, but it's fine. We're still going to let you in anyway. It's which a lot baffling. like what we're seeing with the Super League. It's a lot which like is, what we're with the Super League. Which is baffling, right? Because I think that, that that is probably one of the most blatant kind of expressions of we want to stick to tradition. We want to reward the clubs that, you know, have historically been pampered <clears throat> and pamper them further. And I, I, that that is just so bizarre to me because I think that wouldn't you much rather have some team like Ajax when they did their run to the semifinals that is just like done tremendously well domestically or maybe not even an example like that, right? They They are consistently in the Champions League or the Europa League. But some club, like, let's say, you know, uh, I, I've been a huge fan of Leeds United. They played this year, or this today, today, and they've been playing yeah. fantastically this year, and they have such an interesting style of play. Let's say, hypothetically, you know, they end up in the top seven. Wouldn't you rather give Leeds a chance at this competition to just run through some teams and kind of give them everything they have than a Juventus that's washed up and maybe hasn't really found their rhythm and has all this, like, these kind of old, rotting ancient ideas that that maybe need need to move on i think that you have yeah. to be compelled by a, somebody that has nothing to lose and will bring that volatility to the fixture i am but i think you're gonna get that in the super league about as much as you would in the champions league right right and i i know i know it's a much smaller pool in the super league and they're only gonna let five outside teams in but i mean if we're talking seriously here, you know, think about the Champions League, you know, remove, remove the Super League teams and then look at the next five best teams in the Champions League and look at the teams after that. Are those teams you think have a realistic shot of winning and you know, making a deep run? I don't really think so. A um, deep run with the current teams still in it or if you removed all the ESL clubs? Assuming, you know, I'm saying that all the Super League clubs are like guaranteed to be, guaranteed to be in the Super League, right? So this this is a question of 
you know, we'll have the Super League clubs and then one of the next five teams after them will make a, you know, a Cinderella run maybe. But the, um, the five teams after that probably don't have what it takes, especially in this modern format that's going to have 19 games or whatever in the Champions League to win it. I don't think any team that's not at the very, very top tier is just going to be able to do that. I don't think it's feasible. And so I think going into that, one of the things that I had I had written down as well is this dilemma of rising clubs, right? I had gotten in some conversations on Twitter last night talking to some people that I don't know, but it was a pleasure to speak with them on the the feelings that some people are having who support, say, clubs like West Ham right now or clubs like Real Sociedad or any number of of of. of of Lille, right? Of yeah. clubs that have done exceptionally well Napoli, right now Roma, in, in this sorts. moment that maybe historically haven't necessarily done so. And, and the main, I think, point here is the idea that the top clubs yesterday are not equal to the top clubs today and are not equal to the top clubs tomorrow. And we see that with regardless of what our time horizon is. Like, there are some things that will remain constant, but there has been plenty of, you know, fluctuation but over the course of time with regards to, you know, there was an age where Bulgaria and Romania were soccer powerhouses, and now they they don't even qualify for the Euros, right? And, and yeah, so I think. I mean, I don't I don't think that's a cyclical thing. I don't think that age is coming again, and that in thirty years we're going to see a bunch of Bulgarian and Romanian teams at the top of world football. I think, I think uh, you know, in some ways we've hit the globalization thing. That's already passed. You know, if you were on top when it hit, that's great. You're going to be on top for a long time. If you weren't. It's a tough road now, but see, I would combat that with the with the with the notion that Croatia, a, a country with again, I don't have the statistic in front of me, perhaps two million people of population, Croatia made the World Cup final against France, but that's right, in a competition full of Belgians who also are small, but English and and Brazilian and German and Spanish sides. Croatia is the one that ascended through all of them, and I think. Yeah, Regardless but, I mean, of... you look at the players on that Croatian team, and they're all at huge European clubs. You know, you have Perisic, Lovren, Rakitic, Modric, Mandzukic, all those players. You know, but I guess my question really to you clubs. is like, if we look ten years ago and ask ourselves what the top handful of clubs are, I think maybe six or seven of them are consistent. But you might have put other groups, other clubs, into this conversation that we are not considering today. And I think that like who? moving forward. I think you could put, I mean, Porto has been one of the clubs that I think is on the fringes. And that's an interesting one that I want to talk about actually later on. Yeah. But there, there are a handful, I think, that you might put up here. I think look at a club like Valencia that has had like a tremendous amount of fluctuation where they had an unbelievable crop of young Spanish players, I think, that ended up kind of dispersing and comprising that national team that won the World Cup in 2010. That's a club yeah. that now is run by some sort of billionaire who basically has disassociated himself entirely from the fan base. And they've seen a tremendous rise, fall, rise, fall. Yeah. And depending on when you take the picture, that's going to change. And I think, I don't you, think it's going to change that much, Martin. I mean, I think like Valencia are a great example, I think, because they show how to get to the top and how to not get to the top. You know, the way to get to the top right now is with investment. Right, it's with a billionaire buying your club. Sure. And if, if that doesn't happen, you're probably not going to get to the top. You but know? what if I told you that there's a rising, there's an increasing market for billionaires to invest in football, and there are only going to be more of these Newcastle takeover kind of propositions as we move down the line, and there's going to be more money flooding into the game, and we're going to see a team in the next two years. 
that suddenly gets a cash infusion that rises to the top that was now nowhere near it. Yeah. And it's going to keep happening with, I think, greater frequency. That could very well happen. But my counter argument to this and to, to this whole backlash against the Super League is I, I've seen the argument over and over again that people are saying this is the end of competition. You know, the spirit of football is dead. And now, you know, Arsenal and Liverpool and Man United are pulling up the ladder after them and no one's ever going to be able to catch them. You know, the, if the only way you're able to catch these teams is by being bought out by a foreign billionaire and becoming the same thing that they are, then this isn't the death of football. You know, football's already dead. And that's, that's true. And you, that's you look, you look at the teams that are chasing in England, you know, the teams that everyone's saying, oh, the, these small clubs have done so well this season to keep up with the big six. You know, Aston Villa, Everton, Leeds, Wolves, all owned by foreign billionaires who are doing the exact same thing. And if they had been bought out 10 years ago instead of Man City, then one of those clubs would be in the Super League right now. And instead, they're all wearing, you know, football should be fair shirts. They're trying well, to do I the same thing. And I think that's that's interesting. It's an important point of irony. And one of the things that I think I kind of had discussed with this with this guy on Twitter who is a West Ham fan is that I, I basically posed that question. I was like, you know, I, I'm just curious, right? There's this kind of bizarre, to me, almost counterintuitive desire to compete against these billionaires, right? The thing that I'm hearing, right, is like, you know, oh, part of the joy of the FA Cup is that you know that you're going to get to play against these big sides and you might know that you're going to get battered, but you know you're going to play them. And you know that there's a chance that David might triumph over Goliath. And I think that that idea that there's joy in David, you know, beating or toppling Goliath, I, I understand that. But I almost wonder, like, is it fair that others have had to play against teams that simply play by different rules, financially speaking? What is what is the it's need... Fair. To, to to base your value as a club on whether you're able to beat someone who is, you know, if you think about like, like, like fighting, right? Like the MMA, why should a fighter who's a featherweight feel the need to fight a heavyweight and, and let that be the judge, the, 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 the thing that determines whether they're a good, they're a good fight or not. You well, fight against people that somehow are similar to you. And if you have all, if you're all playing by the same rules, right? In the spirit of fairness, then you see who is able to triumph. But in the EPL, the uh, variety, the, the spectrum of transfer budget, yeah, well, they're all high on the list, but they're all very stratified. And so my question mm -hmm. is like, why should Sheffield feel the need to compete against a man city? What, well, they, if, if maybe beating need. teams like Crystal Palace is much more fair of a competition and maybe much more of a representation of if against people that have been given the same opportunities and the same funding and the same resources, if they are better, that to me would matter more. It would matter more. But I mean, the reason it matters so much to people is because there's nothing else, you know, the, the media and all the history behind the league, like it used to be more competitive, right? And it used to be something where you could actually be like, okay, like this Liverpool team in the seventies, they've got a great manager, they got a great team, but, you know, I think we can go out there and give it our best and we'll be better than them. You know, now you look at Liverpool, if you're Sheffield United and, oh, they've got a great manager and a great team and they're worth $5 billion more than us. But if we go out there and give it our best, we can maybe get a draw, you know? And, I, you know, you, you talked about David beating Goliath and, you know, that's kind of fun to see sometimes still when it happens, you know, Burnley gets a result against Manchester United or whatever. But at what cost, right? 
Like, do, what do, do, you, I really, what do you think the cost is? I think the cost is watching good soccer, right? I can watch a game between Crystal Palace and Southampton, and I'll enjoy it. I can watch a game between Liverpool and Man City, and I'll enjoy it. But if I watch a game between Liverpool and Crystal Palace, I'm not going to enjoy it, right? Because, I think this is because the team is going to play negatively because they know they can't compete. You know, all these teams know they cannot compete by playing attacking soccer and going out and trying to win. So these teams don't try to win. And if they do, they try to do it in an extremely negative way that's parking the bus the entire game and trying to nag one quick goal off a counterattack. So right? this is, I think this is a phenomenal way to kind of guide this conversation. I think one of the points that I had here that I really want to touch upon was this idea of improving the quality of the game and that there's a lot of teams that are sick and tired. I think we can take La Liga as an example where basically the bottom half of the league parks the bus in every single game they play against anybody in the top half. Yeah. And it's painful. It that's, is much harder. That's why I, I cannot watch La Liga for this reason. Like I've tried. It just, I can't do it. Well, and that's the thing, right? You find that Barcelona has a harder time beating Valladolid because they're playing a 5-5 five, five as their formation. Yeah. There's no forward. It's a five back with interchanging five midfielders, right? You see that, and then you ask, and then it's harder to win that game against than, than playing against Athletic Bilbao in the Copa del Rey final, who is quite negative to begin with, but will actually try to maybe, maybe do something with the ball. Now, here's my, here's my counter argument to this, right? You, you have this perspective, which I think is valid, where it's like, oh, all this negative football. You have these teams that are so much better within the same league than the teams that are relegation fodder. The relegation fodder teams just pack the box. It's horrible to watch. It's negative. Here's what I would, I would propose as a counter argument to that. I think that that is all extremely relative, okay? I think that for me, you know, this idea that, oh, you put a bunch of really big attacking fun sides together. They're all going to just go for it. I don't think that's what's going to happen because I think what ends up happening is I don't this, think so either. Yeah. I think that it's relative. And I think that when you, when you take a table, it's not what teams exist in the, in the, in the, in the table that are going to play attacking versus play negatively. I think it's the top teams are going to chase the game because they have, you know, more to lose and they're going to try to impose their will on the other teams and the teams that are not as good, regardless of what, how we shift our mean quality caliber of play are going to be negative. And so what I think I'm gonna, what we're gonna see is we're gonna take this group of like some of the most fun sides in Europe. We're gonna put them in a box, and the top half are going to be incentivized to play ambitious soccer, and the bottom half, teams that we would never expect to play negatively, are going to play negatively, and we're gonna see this kind of like sullying of their identity of who they are. I, I don't think you you saw this right. I agree. In, I think I think saying sullying the identity is a great way to put it. You know, because we don't see Arsenal. You know, we see Arsenal as not great. But we don't see them as a bottom of the table team in this new Super League. They would be a bottom of the table team. They're going to be going out and losing or tying most weeks, and that's going to take who, them getting used to. But you know who else will be a bottom of the league team? Juventus. You know who else yeah. will be a, a, like AC Milan? I know. Oh, there's 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 a lot of teams in this format that we would never necessarily link. I mean, you saw it when Barcelona played Juventus in the Champions League. That was very much Barcelona dominating the ball and Juventus trying to react on the counter. And, yeah. and, and you so see the with... question becomes like, if the argument for this is to improve the quality of the game or to kind of combat this like competitive inadequacy, you're going to face teams that park the bus regardless. No matter if you're a good team, you cannot stave off the fact that a team that is inferior to you will park the bus. At, in this day and age, that is the tactic that has been proven to work. 
I think you're right. But here's here's my counter to your counter argument. <laughs> All right. Sure. I, let's I think, hear it. Okay. Like I can't I can't blame the worst teams for doing this, right? I can't blame Sheffield for playing negatively against Liverpool because it's it's life and death, man. Every point matters so much, right? And the Premier League, you know, the difference between getting relegated and getting sent down, you know, it's it's millions and millions of dollars, right? And that's the key. Everything, that's the everything key. is at stake. And, you know, for everything bad you want to say about the Nations League, it doesn't have those stakes. You know, Arsenal are going to be fine. They're going to be in it next year. So they don't have to worry about playing desperately and trying to grab every point. You know, the... The Super League is very upfront that it's just about entertainment. So part of me thinks that if it's just about entertainment and these clubs don't have the pressure of relegation or missing out on top four or whatever hanging over them, then they're just going to be able to relax a little bit and just play some good soccer. And maybe that's too hopeful of me, but I think it's a possibility that, you know, without, without all this existential pressure of having to, you know, really fight for every point, that we're going to see teams play a bit more attacking and play a bit more positively. I think that's one of the really huge upsides of this format that I haven't seen anyone talk about at all. And I think that one thing to consider there too is like, there's always this idea in sports of performance bonuses. And like, you know, if you qualify for said tournament, you receive X amount of money, you add all this pressure, you add all this financial stability kind of variable into the into the into the arena yeah, it's I, and now, I, now you don't you're gonna get a billion euros the end of the year whether you win 100 games or zero you know it just doesn't matter anymore it's like wrestling man like they have bad wrestlers and pro wrestling you know they still use them and they still try their best and still good entertainment i think that's what soccer is going to become it's going to become well, a lot I, like pro wrestling and, and I think, so here's what I'll say. I think that this is a good moment to pause. We probably far surpassed where we wanted to originally have our halftime break, but let's put a pin in this for a moment. We're going to be back after we grab some water from the touchline. All right, welcome back, everyone. Me and Martin just got back from our halftime team talk with the manager. He was uh, disappointed at our lack of focus in the first half. But he said we showed a lot of heart, especially considering we're making our debut. And he thinks with a good second half performance, we could really get something out of this match. So let's get started, boys. I think that our plan from here, given the the feedback from, from the coach, is to actually make this, if even possible, more scatterbrained in the first segment. So yeah. I think that we, we've got a handful of different um, kind of high-level topics that I want to make sure that we sprinkle in. Um, there's a lot of different dimensions to this and, and the, the situation will continue to evolve over the course of the next couple of weeks, but there's a couple of things I think that we've kind of found our path through and some things that we've maybe missed. So I want to make sure we touch upon them. So, yeah, so let's just go through and touch on some of those things. Do you want to start with something and then I'll do yeah. the next one? So I think, I think I'm just going to kind of pop around, but one of the things that I think is really interesting to chat about briefly are the economics of all this, right? We've talked a little bit about trickle down um, and whether that's really legit. Um, one thing that I'm really interested to kind of think about is one, where is all this money coming from? That's a point of uncertainty that I really don't understand. I don't know what, like what treasure chest was found in that will provide all these clubs with this ridiculous amount of cash. That's a separate thing. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I'm interested in kind of thinking about is just transfers with this, right? You have, you suddenly are going to have a bunch of clubs that have an inordinate amount of money and 
I, I think that I'm, I'm curious to kind of think about whether there's, you know, I'm curious to, as to your re quick reaction on like, do you think there's going to become, if this goes through like an ESL tax where any team selling, selling a player to the, one of these teams is going to be able to upcharge by 300% and totally maximize their value and overshoot their value really. And then subsequently we're going to kind of see this funneling of talent into this league where if you're a team that's outside of this, you have very little incentive to sell one of your players to any club outside of this group. And so you're basically just going to have a bunch of people offering goods and services like a market to this group of Kings that get their yeah. pick and, and for them, right? Like they can pay 400 million for one player because it's inconsequential mm -hmm. to their budget. But then suddenly you have these spurts of wealth that we're going to start seeing. And it's going to be this crazy, I think, spiral of, in influx of cash, influx of cash. And we talked about how like the, the, the Neymar transfer really broke kind of everything. I, I almost yeah. wonder what does this look like for future transfers? I think that's a fascinating question. And it's, it's really hard to say what this looks like for future transfers, but I mean, broadly, I think the players, the best players are going to go wherever the best money is, right? That's what happens now. No one in this Manchester city team grew up dreaming of playing for man city right? It's, it's just, uh, it's mercenaries. But yeah, I mean, that, that aspect of it where, you know, if you get a Super League team paying a non-Super League team 400 million, you know, for the next Mbappe or Holland or whatever it is, you know, if that kind of money is not getting thrown around in the non-Super League anymore, then that's going to create a massive gap, right? And, and, then, and I think what, what this is kind of, what I think is interesting too, is like a lot of this, we had chatted about this maybe offline too, that some of this super league thing is kind of a product of this like ineptitude that we've seen from FFP and financial Absolutely. fair play yeah. as something that maybe has not really gotten off the ground where I think there's maybe even an argument. And I would propose this as kind of like an, an option for how to view this whole thing that if you have teams that you can't control the amount of money they spend because your guidelines are too loose. So there's loopholes and these, you know, they, these clubs have the best lawyers in the world and they can get around it. Mm -hmm. Right. Then, you know, all about that. <laughs> maybe maybe one of the things that's actually advantageous and a way that a positive way to view this is instead of basically saying, you know, oh, let's restrain the team, the big teams in this circle. What if you just put all of these big teams in a separate cage, give them as much money as they want, give them way more money than they could possibly even imagine and isolate them and put them in some other other area where they don't have to necessarily be a plague to those that are trying to compete against them. But That's where, another lens through which- Where are they gonna get players from them? You can't isolate them from getting new players. Well, and that's the critical thing, right? Like one of the things that Flo talked about today was this trickle down idea that, mm -hmm. you know, oh, if we have a ton of money, then we're gonna buy players from Osasuna and Las Palmas and all of these other clubs are going to benefit because we're just gonna poach their talent. They're gonna get a hundred mil and I mean, reinvest it. Look at the Bundesliga, right? That's what Bayern does already. And that hasn't led to a bunch of different winners or a bunch of European success for Bundesliga teams. It's led to a one-team league in Germany I, over the I, past I 10 agree. years. I think it's pretty ironic, don't you? I think it's very ironic. Yeah. I mean, especially especially with Germany being the one so so hard against this. Everyone in Germany, even Leipzig. Out that That's one thing. I said I wasn't surprised by this. Leipzig coming out as early as they did against this, that really surprised me. I, I think that was say. like their, I think their PR team probably said, hey guys, this is our one chance to make a really good impression. Mm -hmm. Let's just do this for the track record. But I think, 
before we depart on another point, I think the other final thing that I want to talk about, there's so much TV conversation going on with this right now too, right? And one thing that I'm actually very fearful of is, is this kind of going to, you mentioned wrestling, is this kind of transitioning towards a pay-per-view model for matches? Because that is something that I think I'm very scared of. I mean, so I don't know if you know this, but uh, I mean, American companies have been doing pay-per-view for Champions League matches like for the past two, three years. That's that's already happening. I think Bleacher Report and now CBS have packages where you can pay like $3 to watch a game. Something like that. But yeah, and I, I think TV is kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about too. And, you know, it becoming more like wrestling. And just the fact that this is all entertainment, Right like take a very broad step back, you know, forget your ties to your local club team or how much it means to you. You know, this is watching people play a sport for two hours, you know, as entertainment. That's what we're doing. Right. And the question now of the modern age is when you have access to every single soccer game in the world, you know, from just a click away on your computer, then why would you not watch the best? Right. Because in the past, there's a very clear reason for why you don't watch the best is you now because you can't see them because it costs thousands of dollars to get on a plane and your local club is 20 minutes away and you can just go down to the stadium, enjoy their matches and feel like you're really a part of something. Right. But now, you know, am I going to walk 20 minutes to my local club when I can spend two seconds and get a stream of like two of the best teams in the world playing against each other instead of watching a, you know, Serbian first division match or wherever I live. I don't know. I, I mean, unless you have really strong family ties to that club, I see most people who are just getting into football, most kids who are picking up the sport are going to make the easier choice, which is to stay home and watch the best they can. And this is already happening. I mean, viewership numbers for TV, for the big five leagues, massively up over the past 10 years. And the correlation has been that ticket sales in all small European leagues have plummeted. People and, aren't watching them as much. And I think that that's a sobering reality that actually quite nicely segues into another point that I want to I shift to, which is this idea of fixture fatigue, right? One of the things that we saw with COVID was this experiment where you just had suddenly this incredibly congested schedule, a lot of injured players, unusual amount of squad management necessary this year and teams that maybe like underperformed at the beginning, people asking questions as to, well, maybe they underperformed on purpose so they could preserve their energy so that at the end of the race, they didn't run out of gas and sputtered to the sidelines, but instead kind of like went straight through the finish line. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing that we saw with that uh, in some capacity was that more games didn't necessarily correlate with more engagement. One of the things that, that, that Perez was talking about today was you know, there's all these kids now that are on their tablets and all these kids that are on their phones and they're watching the game, but they're also texting and they're not, you know, the game's too yeah. long and they complain that it's too long and boring and there's not enough action. And so what he's saying is like, you know, you put these teams together, you have more of these big matches, there's more action, there's more things. And then you have kids that are glued to the screen and you capture this like young disengaged audience. I guess yeah. the question to you, Will, is like, is a Derby a Derby if we see it six times per year? Is you know, they're a dilution that we can suffer from if we just have are just pummeled with this and this suddenly becomes the norm and we just get numb to watching these massive fixtures that lose their this is a common theme, right? Oh, these games are only special because they happen every once in a while. And if we see them five times a year, are they special anymore? I'm curious. You talked about the stakes that are involved with relegation. 
the stakes involved in a big game like this is you have one match to prove that you're actually better than this other massive team. If you mm -hmm. have six more games that season, is the pressure still there? It's it's not, or at least not to the same degree. And I mean, this is why they have the World Cup every four years, not every year, you know? It's because if you have it every four years, it's a real event and everyone's going to watch it and it's huge. And I mean, even, even just looking at the past few seasons, it's like, you know, Liverpool play Manchester City every couple or twice every season in the Premier League. But, you know, when we played them in the Champions League a few years ago, it was still exciting. It was something new. You know, it was playing them on a different stage. It felt it felt big, right? And if we're playing them just twice a week or um, twice a season in the Super League every year, on top of playing them twice in the Premier League every year, then yeah, that's going to start feeling a lot less special. And I think I think that's going to be the case for all of those big games. It's right. It's it's just seeing that repetition, you know, because right now in the Champions League, you get matchups and you're like, oh, those teams haven't played in a while. Like, this is exciting. I want to see that. And in the future, it'd be like, oh, those teams haven't played since March. Like, great. Like, we'll get to watch this again. And uh, yeah, I think I think it does lower the stakes, at least for that group stage. And I think eventually over the 23 year period or whatever they're signed up for, then it's just going to become a lot. Only having five new teams in every year and seeing the same kind of matchups over and over again. But I don't know. That's how it works in American sports, and people still like those. So maybe I mean, not. I think it's an interesting case study. I think one other thing that I saw online this week was like this idea that if you have these the top teams and the top managers, the top tactical minds that are being faced off against each other with greater frequency, tactics will evolve faster. What are your thoughts on that? I think so. Yeah, I think uh, you know the the current state of league soccer, like we talked about, where you know there's there's such disparity that some of the teams can't compete and resort to playing the exact same tactical style over and over again. I mean, it doesn't lead to much development, does it? I mean, I guess it leads to development. Teams figure out how to park the bus a little bit better, but yeah, there's there's not much pushing the envelope right now. There's no like, oh, I'm going to counter Liverpool's attacking formation with this brilliant attacking formation that's going to counter it. It's, oh, I'm going to counter Liverpool's attacking formation by doing what the last 10 teams have done to stop them winning, which is parking nine men behind the bus and having a quick left winger exploit Trent Alexander-Arnold on the counterattack. So, yeah, I think I think having kind of that, you know, big melting pot of all, you know, Simeone, Klopp, Mourinho, if he ever gets rehired all of those guys in there is going to be fascinating i think seeing those battles at a much more common frequency is going to lead to maybe if not development of tactics overall at least like some interesting tactics being used by those specific clubs you know to beat those managers that they become very familiar with that they know are going to be the big opposition every year well and so i think what's interesting that, that side of me is is really excited about the Super League, you know, the side that like wants to see more of these absolute top tier managers and players coming up against each other, because it's not something that happens very much these days. And I think that we, so we talk about relegation as like this thing that's like this ideal kind of complacency reinforcing mechanism that's gone with this new ESL. Yeah. One thing that we could also kind of flip that to consider is that maybe if you have six fixtures against the same team, that's considered one of the top five teams in the world. In the, over the course of the year, maybe that actually incentivizes not just like a, you know, laziness of, hey, I'll just go out here and throw this match because I'm going to get my 10 billion after it. But instead, mm -hmm. maybe it incentivizes a no hold bar, like 
all all going all out with this creative new idea and maybe that becomes a breeding ground or a or a, a a sandbox for for managers to tinker in ways they've never been able to tinker before because the consequences for making those changes are far too great when the stakes are so high and so now you're basically taking incredible teams no stakes do whatever you want see what you can come up with maybe that's an environment that's more suited towards creativity and less yeah, towards and- you know nullifying other people's ideas and and the scrappy resourcefulness yeah and I, I talked about that in the first half too with you know the teams like arsenal or milan or whatever i don't think they'll play that negatively in the super league just because they don't have that stick and yeah i think that applies to the top end too there could be more teams just gunning for it and that's that's one thing i really like about the super league is that they're being maybe it's an american thing but they're being very upfront that this is just entertainment you know they're just trying to get the the biggest hits they can on the tv and I don't know, maybe it's too far to call that honesty, you know, but it's it's kind of refreshing to see because I think the Champions League, like I said, is trying to become the exact same thing, you know, with these increased fixtures and giving more spots to bigger leagues and trying to make it harder for underdog runs. You know, they're trying to do the same thing. And I kind of respect the Super League is just telling us like, okay, you idiot, like here, here are the big soccer games you want to see. Now give us our money. Like that's very upfront. I kind of like that. Okay. So let's, let's move on to another point. I, I, I think I can appreciate that same sort of like honesty too, especially for fans who maybe as a result of this have kind of come to the their senses and that they feel like they've been lied to. Maybe this is a product that now says, you know what, we're not going to lie to you. This is a massive conglomerate. But let's let's touch upon another idea that I, I wanted to explore briefly, which is that of like these these extra three teams that are coming in, right? There's been oh, a lot of rumors about or, or, no, yeah, oh yeah, the extra three. I know extra, yep. So the extra three, let's say, right? I don't know who they're going to be. It seems like there's some top clubs that are kind of coming out very strongly against all this. But let's say one of the ones that I found yesterday online that was kind of suggested was Porto which was kind of a unique one, I think, to hear, but they've done exceptionally well this year and actually had some strong kind of campaigns in recent years. And I think a lot of people well, they like won me... in 2010, right? Was it 2010? Oh, I don't know. I yeah, thought it was... 2009, 2010, something like I thought that. it was further back, like 03, 04, no? Maybe. I don't maybe check. Oh, no, maybe that, check. Was, that was a... It was Mourinho's that was Mourinho's, Porto. Mourinho's Inter won in 2010. I'm That's thinking right. of the wrong Mourinho team. Yeah, you're right, 2004. Mourinho on your mind. I think I think the, the interesting thing Hard to consider to. here. Yeah. I think the interesting thing to consider here, right, is like take this thought experiment, right? Let's say you have all these teams and then Porto is one of the three, right? Porto is known as kind of a factory, a youth factory, in the same vein that Dortmund and Benfica and Ajax are considered in the same sort of vein. Where yeah. it's like this place that a lot of top clubs go to to poach talent. Here's my question. For a club like that, who might get backlash from their domestic league for whatever, you know, oh, you're abandoning us. We're going to shun you. You're not one of us anymore. For a club like that, let's just take a moment to evaluate the incentives that go beyond the mere financial ones, which are obviously extravagant, right? Yeah. One of the biggest things that I see for a club like that is suddenly you are now playing against the best, the top elite money bag sides in the world. And every single game for you is a showcase for your U18 starlets, of which you have many. And so it's almost like it's this shop window for a club like that that gets to basically say, instead of you know playing 38 games or however many games are played in the, the, the Portuguese league against all these random teams and hoping that somebody from England is a scout that watches our videos on Y Scout, now... Mm-hmm. 
every single game we play, even if we lose them, is going to show my like 17 year old kid with, you know, teenage acne to Chelsea. And okay. so I think well, my question to you is basically, do you see this for a club like Porto or a club like, again, like Ajax or Dortmund or any of these clubs that are, that could potentially be brought in here as just an unbelievable opportunity in terms of youth development and exposure? Okay. I, I think yes, but not as a founding club. I think if Porto, you know, went, do really well in their domestic league and whatever, you know, bones of the Champions League are left after all these teams leave and they make it into the invited five clubs for one year, then yes, that'll be an incredible opportunity to showcase their youth, you know, on the biggest stage. I think for a lot of teams like that, you know, other teams you mentioned like Benfica, Dortmund, Ajax, teams like that, that would be a huge opportunity. But I think if Porto were admitted as one of the founding teams, right? And they, they have to play against these absolute top clubs, you know, every week, you know, 10 times a year for the next, the rest of their lives, the next 25 years, then are they going to be able to still be that kind of youth talent factory? You know, when, when instead of playing against Tondela and Maritimo every week, they're going to be playing against, you know, like Bayern Munich and PSG and Liverpool and whoever else is in it. Like, I don't know. I think I, I, I think you're with those with those added finances and those added pressure. I think the default for a team like that would sadly be to just go back to buying more big players and not, you know, taking the risk of letting those U18 players like prove their stuff in a game of that magnitude, right? And maybe maybe they still let those U18 players prove themselves through the league, and then they'll get a spot in the team if they're doing well, but as like just a full shopping window kind of thing. I don't think that would be sustainable for Porto as a founding club, right? Perhaps perhaps for one of the teams that comes in as that rotational five. I think that's a good point. I, I yeah. want to touch upon another comment that I had here, which is with regards to new refereeing. So this was something that I was kind of exposed to with the Florentino interview today, where he made a lot of comments about basically, that basically suggested to me that as many people are right now, there's a frustration with VAR implementation. There's this antagonistic oh, yeah. view of of referees and how they're all terrible I, I personally i could never imagine pursuing a career as a referee because i think that the best that a referee can do is to not be bad you know and that's a very hard thing i think to find fulfillment in and yet it's, there are so many it's very right? difficult i pursued a very brief career as a referee and in my second game i was uh, mercilessly abused by the parents of a u10 soccer team and that was enough for me and were like, you fulfilled like, not at all i, I felt <laughs> bad I felt bad about myself. I didn't like soccer very much in general. I really hated those parents. It was just not a great day. Okay, so then refereeing, right? Is this like very, very polarizing thing right now? And also, again, like you're mentioning, it's hard to put yourself in the in that headspace of somebody it's that hard. pursues that. Here's you, don't my question. Get any, you don't get anything out of it. Everyone's going to hate you at the end of the day. Name one like well-liked referee. No you're way. Pipers. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. hard. I think. I think my question now, right, is that I think that just about every team right now probably has some sort of agenda where they think that the decisions have not gone their way this year, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's certainly the case for a lot of these top clubs that maybe have lost points in fixtures that have been against relegation fodder, where you know a penalty wasn't given and there was an all sort of you know uproar in the media. Here's my question. <sighs> yeah. There's this idea of you know, oh, new refereeing. We're going to have the best referees. We're going to have better technology. It's with all this money, right? You're going to have better training. I guess my question for you is, you know, how can refereeing improve with this added wealth? Can it improve with this added wealth? And how does controlling refereeing impact the game? 
Okay, I think it can improve. At least what my my main frame of reference is, you know, the English Premier League, right? And that I think has some of the worst refereeing in the world. And I know everyone who watches a league probably says that about their league. That's that's just the way people's relationship with the refs is. But when I look at England, the main problem is that there is no turnover in the referees. It's it's been the same group of guys for about 10, 15 years with very few exceptions. And even the exceptions, they don't get to referee very many games. You can look on transfer market, look at the sorted by who's ref the most this year. And there's a very clear distinction. You know, you have a group that's refereed a certain amount of games, and then you have a group that doesn't have the experience that's all refereed maybe half as many, right? And I think this has only gotten worse with the introduction of VAR, because now you have two people from that group you know, one of them's the referee on the field. One of them's the VAR ref, right? They've known each other for 15 years. They're both part of the same institution. And it seems like the general practice or the general guideline that they're following is just agree with the on-field decision, right? Because they don't want to cause trouble and they know nothing's going to happen to them if they just yeah. agree with their buddies and all get along. They're and behind a screen too, right? They're like there's a screen. physical no, barrier. No accountability whatsoever. They can just, you know, draw the lines wherever they want and then it'll be fine and they won't get fired and they're not going to get replaced by a new ref. They're going to keep their job and do just fine. So what I think no, you, no one, no one's even allowed to talk badly about them in the press, right? So I they're think what incredibly you're, protected. What you're kind of leading up to is this idea that, well, if you have like really, really highly paid refs in this really, really expensive, luxurious league, then if you have a bad game, you're out. Yeah. And I think, but, I but think my question is... I mean, Champions, question, Champions League refereeing is good. It's really good by comparison. Well, that's interesting. I think, something like that. Does that maybe add a certain amount of cutthroatness that if I'm a referee and I know the stakes are so unbelievably high, maybe that actually worsens the quality of my decision-making because of the anxiety that comes with everybody yelling at me and knowing that there are billionaire owners in the stands that this maybe, will be my last game if I mess this up. But like, if you're going to give in to that kind of pressure, then you're probably not sure. a very good referee anyway. Sure. Yeah, that makes that's sense. Probably, you know, I, I don't see like Felix Birch getting, uh, you know, phased by the Super League after what he's been through in his career, refereeing World Cup finals and all that, right? Cool. So I'm going to move on to another question, uh, right. which which relates to the comparison with this Super League to other leagues that have basically kind of maybe more quietly been trying to perform these kind of aggregation uh, sure. ideas. And can I start with this, actually? Go um, for it. The English Premier League when it was first founded, was pretty much the exact same idea as this on a smaller scale. It was a push led by the top clubs in England to break away from the established football association structure and take advantage of lucrative new TV money by having a league where all the top teams would play each other every week. And everyone hated it, and then they all got over it, and no one talks about it anymore. But it was and the same thing as this. Same thing. Because so here's my question, right? Like that kind of ties ties into that, where you're basically arguing that we're just all up in arms about this because it's the first time we've seen it, but it by no means is the first time that it has happened. No, I think there's a parallel. All. There's a parallel right now, right? Where there was some rumors that came out a couple of weeks ago about the Beneliga, that the Belgian and the Netherlands kind of federations are considering merging because obviously, yeah. like Benelux is like a thing where Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Belgium 
have this kind of triad in in Europe. Whenever you go as a tourist from the United States, you go visit the three. You know, boom, yeah. boom, boom. And, and so, I actually really liked that. I thought it was a really interesting idea. I would have loved to see it happen. Maybe it still will. And me too. But here's my question. One of the things that Flo talked about today was like, you have other places that are trying to do this. You have teams, groups in Scandinavia that are trying to weld leagues together and make a Scandinavian league. And you have this Beneliga that's actually like maybe coming off the ground. How is this any different? And I guess the question there is just like, how is this any different? Well, it's different because of no relegation. That's that's plain, the only plain and simple. And and that, you know, when I really get down to it and pick apart what I hate about this idea, that's really the one thing that sticks out. And if they got rid of that or ev even limited it, you know, because 15 groups or 15 teams out of a group of 20 not being able to be eliminated is just ridiculous, right? But even if they made that 10, you know, if you cut out some of those bottom clubs like Arsenal, AC Milan, Tottenham, who you're feeling like, ah, should those guys really be in there? You cut those out. You have teams like Bayern, Real Madrid, Barcelona, who are always guaranteed to be in. It's like, is that really that different from the Champions League? I mean, I, I don't know the exact streaks for Barcelona and Real Madrid, but it's been a long time since they missed the group stage. I don't think Bayern Munich have ever missed the group stage of a Champions League. And the real exception to that is England, but that's just because there's so much competition. And there's, you know, six good teams fighting for four spots, sometimes more. You'll get a Leicester or West Ham or an Everton thrown in there. But, I mean, part of me feels like these clubs are just too big to fail anyway now, unless they're horribly mismanaged, which I actually wanted to get into when we were talking about Valencia a few minutes ago. It's like that's that's the only path down. Valencia is like just having a billionaire owner who happens to be like just completely checked out and doesn't care at all. That's the only way you're going to lose that billion dollar advantage, though. I don't see it going away, you know, through more natural forms, I guess. So, I mean, it, it's not that different from something like a Benelux besides that. And I think th this is maybe getting into the next thing I want to talk about, but I think this could actually be really, really good if they made a few changes. And I think those changes are getting rid of the no relegation. And, you know, everyone's going to hate me for saying this because everyone's so against this idea, but they need to do more of it. They need to add more of these leagues if they're going to do this. There needs to be a second, a second tier one, a third tier one, maybe even a fourth tier one. You know, mirror what UEFA has done with the club competitions you know, have have some kind of pathway for teams to make it up. You know, maybe you could even have an American-style salary cap in these leagues that's tiered. So what would that entail? Because I know we chatted about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, what, what that would entail is just, I mean, like we talked about earlier, you know, the, the current league systems, you know, having all the teams in England play together is just not fair, right? It's not fair to a Sheffield United to have to compete against a Liverpool or a Man City just because they're both English clubs. Right? I think this has led to the overall standard of play maybe getting worse across leagues. So the question then becomes, how can you find teams for Sheffield to compete against, right? If you don't find them in England, right? You can send them back down to the championship, but they don't really want that, right? They, they want to be in that higher tier. So and suddenly not... there's there's also a, a, a huge fluctuation year to year, right? One year you have Norwich that's parking the bus against all, Man City and all the top other clubs. The next year they're battering teams in the championship. There's no middle ground. It's crazy. Yeah. 
And you, you get that. I mean, there's so much of that yo-yo, I think is what they call it, where a team will just go down and go straight back up. And mm-hmm. it, it's very common. And I think the only way to really combat that is start looking at other countries and other teams that Sheffield can play and have a competitive game against. And may, maybe this is just because I'm American, but I mean, it, it's possible. The framework is there. You know, the travel time would obviously increase massively. But, you know, again, America does it fine. These teams all have plenty of money. They can afford to buy a plane ticket to France, right? The, I, I suppose my question there comes in the in two angles. One, I don't necessarily, I haven't necessarily done the calculations for this, but I know that like TIFO football has done a video on the environmental implications of football and the the emissions and all these different things. And I understand that it may be abstract, but I think if you were to look at the numbers, it's pretty it's pretty absurd. If you suddenly have Sheffield traveling, you know, midweek for a game in Russia and then returning down to Portugal for their next fixture, the, you are suddenly making this one. There's an impact on the environment. There's a financial impact in terms of travel. There's a fatigue that comes with sleeping on the plane your entire life. The players aren't hanging out with their spouses and being at home as much. And the fans of those localized regions become more and more alienated because instead of being able to travel for a game against Palace, now they have to go to Russia. No one's yeah, traveling for that that's anymore. True. You're completely right. And I, this this idea is more from like a good entertainment standpoint than a good practical standpoint. Like sure. I, I know this would be absolutely terrible for the environment and it would screw over all kinds of local fans. I, this, this is just like me theoretically thinking about how we can make soccer fair again and, and get leagues that actually are competitive and have, you know, maybe not every team in it, but have a lot of teams in it that can look at every game and be like, oh yeah, we can maybe win this game. Because right now, I mean, I, I really struggle to think of a single league in Europe where that is the case. I think I this, think it exists. I think that's it's an interesting point. And I think that this kind of segues nicely in terms of this like, you know, oh, we're thinking about this in a purely theoretical sense. We're not maybe thinking about the logistics or the impact in other in other regards. We talked a lot about before this podcast, and I think online too, there's a lot of discourse on the irony with Qatar looming. And I, and I definitely want to touch upon that because I think that there's a, it's very interesting yeah. to see a lot of, we mentioned virtue signaling earlier, you know, a lot of people that are coming out against this in tremendous fashion where maybe they don't have the same reaction to this world cup that we've seen a lot, a lot of ethical problems with maybe these governing bodies that responded within, you know, five minutes of all of this going public that maybe have taken longer to respond to issues with racism and other things that have kind of plagued the sport too. What's the, maybe, maybe how do you perceive some of the irony in all of this when it comes to other issues and the intensity with which the governing bodies have reacted to this in particular? I I think it's very telling, you know, I I think UEFA and all them are reacting so strongly, not, not because of any sense of altruism or about morality and football, but because, you know, this hurts their bottom line massively. You know, if this goes through, UEFA are screwed. You know, the Champions League is going to be in shambles, right? So it's no surprise that they're coming out against it and calling it a disgrace and calling it the worst thing that's ever happened to football. But yeah, I mean, I had a moment where you know, I was I was watching Gary Neville talk about this stuff. And I'm just like, man, the World Cup is in Qatar in 2022, being built by slave labor. Like, what I, I are we heard, talking about? I, I haven't heard a single person on Sky Sports or whatever the mainstream thing is like come out against that in support of it. But now with this, suddenly now football is all about money and it's disgusting and it's well, hurting people. This isn't really hurting people. And Guitar, what's ironic is hurting people. What's ironic about that, and I think it's an excellent point, 
you saw like the boycott that like, you know, the Norwegian players had, right? They were like all against Qatar. And it, it goes oh. back to the kids that got invited to the birthday party. Norway lost to Turkey in qualifiers and very likely will not make the World Cup. Also, and, where, and where so were you, Norway 10 years ago when this happened? It's not right. going to get stopped now. And, and so that's, just, I think, even a separate podcast. We can talk all about that. But yeah. I think that the, the question here is that I keep seeing the situation where the people that have no skin in the game are speaking up. And yeah. the fact of the matter is, it does not matter. It's a nice gesture. It's a virtue signally thing. But if everybody saw that, you know, North Macedonia was wearing a protest shirt, absolutely nobody would care. And the fact that yeah. Germany, you know, lined up and had a had a nice racism, you know, t-shirt message was was good for publicity, but is inconsequential. And like you said, fundamentally does not target the issue at its core, which is where were we 10 years ago when we made these decisions? Where were we when, when when the World Cup went to Russia and then Qatar immediately after, you know, instead of these nations that we claim to have like this feverish culture and maybe, you know, maybe you have a World Cup in Portugal or somewhere like that, right? My, my, my question is basically like, yeah, I, I think that there's just an incredible amount of irony and it's, it's, it's very amusing and very, like you said, very telling that as soon as it is an issue of finances, it becomes a tremendous, tremendous thing. And I think that the, the, the fact of the matter is a lot of these clubs for the owners are cash cows and they're vehicles for them to kind of, you know, it's an investment really. It's a stock. They see, they see the club as a stock. And I guess that goes into another question I had for you briefly, which is we talk about the selection process for these founding clubs, right? Mm -hmm. And how maybe it's like wishy-washy. We're not exactly sure. You know, it's like this financial snapshot of 2021. What are like the wealthy clubs? They all got invited to this club, right? My, my question to you is like, if you think about stocks, a lot of people in terms of investing wisdom think that, you know, you're supposed to hold on to your assets for a certain amount of time so that you don't buy and sell into all the fluctuation. And, you know, maybe you buy something, you hold it for 10 years, and then you reevaluate. My yeah. question is, with these clubs right now that are being cemented as founding clubs, do you, if this goes through, do you have a timeline at which you reevaluate? Is there a time, five years, 10 years, where you can say, hey, now, which are the prosperous teams? Or does this single-handedly make these clubs at a, in an entirely other stratosphere such that you can't even afford to make that reevaluation? I'm going to say the second, the latter. It's a... Uh... One thing I found really interesting is I don't remember if it was in the Florentino interview or on like the official press release that the Super League gave, but they called people who were fans of clubs uh, before this happened legacy fans. And I think that really gets to the heart of the matter. The reason these clubs are in this league is because of their legacy, right? It's because they're big brand names. It's because it's Liverpool, Manchester United, Real Madrid. These teams have the history that other clubs don't have, right? That an RB Leipzig is never going to have, and especially is never going to have now if they miss mm -hmm. out on this, right? Sure. You know, these are the clubs that when football, you know, comes to TVs in, you know, India or China, people, people aren't going to be given Olympiacos games to watch or Crystal Palace games to watch. They're going to be given these clubs to watch, to become fans of. You know, there's going to be new fans of these clubs getting created all the time. And for other teams... I don't know where those new fans are going to come from, right? I mean, I, I don't know where they're really coming from now. Well, and so that's another happening, and that's another intriguing point, right? One other, um, one other, I think, final sector that I want to get into is this other kind of space, which has been maybe struggling for the 
brand expansion and finding new fans and has has been kind of battling this this issue with the globalization of soccer and trying to find a foothold for itself that is legitimate and isn't ridiculed. And that is really the women's game. I think the women's game is an interesting like facet to all of this too, because with the ESL, what I've kind of read online is that their plan is to basically establish an equivalent for the women's game. And so my question yeah. for you, and, and I think this is a point that again, another somewhat positive lens that you can view this through. If you suddenly have tw like 12 founding women's clubs, right. Or, or clubs that have, you know, female players that, are now being given these massive television rights that are being shown all over the world, right? That are being force-fed to everybody, just like the you know the yeah. men's Super League is. Is that actually really, really good for the women's game? Is that something it's, that can actually fantastic. give it an unbelievable platform to grow on? Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, you know the parallel I draw to is uh, Euroleague basketball is is the same kind of thing. It's a very similar structure to this, you know, with uh, established clubs from different countries that, you know, can't get relegated and will always be a part of it. And it worked fantastically and brought up European basketball a massive amount, which we're seeing now kind of the repercussions of that in the NBA. The reason is, you know, the reason I touched on earlier is because this Super League, whatever else you want to call it, is great entertainment, right? It's fantastic. And if, if they make it for the women's game, it's going to be 10 times more exciting than watching, you know, the Man City or Lyon women's teams just beat up on inferior opposition week after week. Right. And it's going to expose, you know, that side of the sport, I guess, the women's side of the sport to people who haven't seen it before and can get involved. And that's the same thing they're trying to do with this Super League for the men's game. I, I, I want to really stress that, you know, this is not designed to get people who are already diehard football fans to watch more right it's like yeah you could say oh maybe some people like this better than champions league but it's it's kind of the same thing as the champions league this is designed for people who aren't fans to have you know a single incredibly appealing package that has all the top teams you don't you don't have to go anywhere else for your soccer this is you know your one-stop shop or whatever it's, it's going to work on that new audience. It's and, mass market and, it, and they're yeah. ramping. That's really what it is. This is them ramping the sport into something that they can mass produce, that they can mass advertise. And you're right, that they can basically say, this is your one-stop shop. And yeah. I think that the other side to the whole woman's argument here is that like, there are, I would argue, fewer established and, and well-known like, women's clubs for sure. When you compare them to the men's game. And that's, I think, simply a fact. I think that there are excellent players in the women's games that are playing in the U.S. And they don't get nearly the amount of recognition nor the amount of exposure that they probably would if they were elevated on a platform like this, right? And so I think the nature by which there are fewer established clubs, I think that leaves fewer left out, too. And For I sure. think perhaps what you end up seeing there is you have you might see a lot less backlash if this happens to the women's game, because suddenly there's way more opportunity. There's a lot of financial conversation, right? Where now you're going to have these women that have been, you know, if you take the United States women's team, they have been, you know, there's been a, this argument of their pay and whether they deserve the pay grade that they're getting. Again, another podcast. Whole, whole think, other episode, yeah. I, I think that what you end up seeing now is now you're going to have a lot of very wealthy female, female superstars. And yeah, a lot of, see, you know, and, and a lot of very like, you know, 
that that changes the game entirely. And maybe they still will, maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe their viewership isn't the same as the men's league. And so there's still going to be less. But you're going to have be, but... you're going to have millionaire players who are now getting a ton of of you know money of opportunity of platforms to speak on and 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 a much broader audience that'll be tuning in to listen and i think that that's one thing that we can really organically honestly distill from this and say you know what if this happened to the women's game i think it'd be an excellent thing yeah and i think a lot of that too is like you said just the less people are feeling left out you know, there, there's not clubs with a hundred year histories. They're like, oh, we've always been able to compete with Liverpool and now they're they're not going to let us. You know, it's it's a lot. It's a very new part of the sport. Right. And if you're trying to start a club out and, you know, you don't have, you know, maybe the financial backing and you're in a league where you're getting beat like 11-0 by these top teams every year, then, yeah, you'd probably be pretty happy to see them gone. You know, because there's not there's not that lingering, you know, legacy sense that you should be able to compete with them. Right. It's just, it's not even in the question because the game was just kind of born like that, right? The the top women's teams just kind of came into being. It wasn't like the start of soccer where everyone was still figuring it out. It's like, okay, we're going to finally do this for women. Like, here's a bunch of money. Go out, sign a bunch of good players, and the rest of the league can just catch up, right? It, was, it wasn't this slow 120-year development that we saw in men's club soccer. Well, and I think it's almost like if you think about the adoption curve for just about any product, right, where the idea is like you want to invest when you're at the base of the adoption curve, when you're about to ride this this S all the way up during the years of growth and the explosion before it kind of tops off at the, at the end. I think right now we're seeing a lot of European clubs, for instance, there's just been this migration of American players from the like United States clubs to European clubs in during yeah. COVID, right? For one reason or another, based on the fact that maybe they weren't, they, they couldn't play because of COVID in the States and other things of that nature. But you see clubs like, like, you know, Real Madrid, and I might be wrong with regards to this, but I think like certain clubs that are massive, massive in the men's side, just now starting to create women's programs, just yeah. now implementing this and putting and investing in this. And so I think that if you now suddenly take something that I think is very promising, because you've seen the rise of opportunity for women in the game and it's nowhere near where it probably should be, but you've seen kind of this growth of, of, of audience and people that are invested in this. If you now inject that, it's like a venture capitalist trying finding some sort of, you know, Y Combinator startup that they want to dump a bunch of angel investment money in. It's like you take this budding thing that has a lot of potential and you inject it with a ton of cash where can it go? And I think for these clubs, it is possible that they there's nowhere they can go but up. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it develops. I think I think this stuff is happening. I think the Super League is here. I think uh, there's nothing FIFA can really do to stop it. And, you know, everyone's just going to have to get used to it. And to all the people who are commenting online that they'll never watch another soccer game again, I can't wait to see you next year, guys. I think I think with that, um, we can probably we can probably draw our first yeah. inaugural episode, an episode that will likely be much longer, I think, than some of the ones that we'll have in the future. Where, where obviously Will and I are still kind of pinning down the the length and the consistency with all of this. We certainly have been kind of giving each other glances throughout this conversation at, at the fact that, oh man, we're really running over on time. We're running but, over on time. We're running over on content. We we talked about way too much stuff and didn't go into <laughs> depth on very much of it at all. I, I don't think we came away with any 
kind of coherent point that people can take away from this. So if you but listen, here we are. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Sorry, for making sorry it, about that. <laughs> thank you for making it all this way. Um, thanks for thanks for hanging out with us for whatever time frame this ends up being. Um, I think that I, I basically want to close with the fact that I'm very excited about um, one, this specific topic and what is going to happen just from like a analytical and intellectual standpoint, just to see where the sport is evolving. I'm also very excited about this touchline theory soccer podcast, which I'm hoping will give us the chance to kind of more organically discuss things. Um, we've got a lot of things we've already talked about that are going to come out in the next couple of weeks and months that are questions again, that we think that it is possible that maybe people aren't asking that we really want to kind of push the discourse on different ways of looking at the sport, different ways of understanding different things and, and trying to apply, you know, different approaches to solving those problems. I think that there's a lot of very standard skill sets that are often used in coaching and management. And, you know, there are certain things that from backgrounds like engineering or psychology or, or economics that we can kind of tie into the way that we approach certain problems. And that I think is something that I'm pretty excited for moving forward. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, while this episode is obviously a bit more scattered than we'd hope it to be eventually, <laughs> I think I think it did give pretty a pretty good sense of just the general direction we're trying to take with this sort of thing. Kind of, you know, delving into something that's happening right now in the football world. And I think, you know, this is kind of a hard thing not to delve into just because it's such a, you know, massive event and it's going to probably change the course of club football history forever. You know, just just trying to take those interesting angles on it. And, you know, talk about maybe some broader aspects of it that people aren't talking about, or you know, getting into some details. But I think today we, you know, we hit upon a lot of different aspects of this problem. You know, how it ties into the broader financial picture, how it's actually going to end up looking next year, whether we should do more of it, or whether it's actually just the death of football, like everyone has been saying. And I don't know, I'm really excited to see how this specific situation develops because it's, it's a big one. And I would say too, that for anybody who is listening, uh, it feels very interesting talking into a microphone and, and having this conversation that will perhaps be listened by two by, by one or two people. But for I'm going to be honest, Martin, I'm, I'm not even going to listen to this back when I'm editing <laughs> it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to let it ride. We're just going <laughs> to let it ride. I, I think for anybody that managed to get this far, we, I am very, and I think we are very, interested in hearing feedback, right? One of the things that I think we want to promote with this is that we're here for the discussion. I, I No one here is going to get offended if you have a, an opinion that is, yeah. you know, contrary to one of ours. And I hope that I, no I one gets offended. I, yeah, I hope I would almost encourage that. And I think that yeah. for us, we're here to talk about things that are maybe a little unconventional and, and try to, you know, find, we spent some time trying to find ways in which this ESL thing could be really positive. And, and that's certainly not, you know, swimming with, the pack, but rather upstream. And I think that that's something that, you know, if you have opinions, you have thoughts, um, be sure to kind of, to, to, to reach out to us. We're on Twitter at touchline theory. Um, Will's going to get a, a Twitter soon enough. I have to encourage uh, him to do that. I, I don't know if I want to do that, Martin. We'll figure it out sometime soon, but you can, you can certainly engage with me at MG underscore theory on Twitter um, we, we might establish some sort of email pipeline through which people can kind of send their feedback or if they have any bone to pick with anything we said, we would, we would really, really love to hear those perspectives. And I think yeah. Will had the idea to maybe, you know, shout out a couple of comments, you know, if we get one or two in the next, you know, 
yeah. in the foreseeable future. Just, I think just we really want to comment, man. If if you really listen to this whole thing, you already spent an hour and fifty minutes, you know, wasting time listening to us talk. <laughs> so you might as well waste another twenty seconds writing a comment, and I'll you read. Might as well let us. You might as well know. Let us know what you think. I think that's an important thing that we oh, want to develop here. I mean, any any comments, I'll take anything, even if it's just like personal abuse. I'll still read it out at the start of the show. So we're, you can. We're just looking for structure at this point. We're looking to things to fill in the gaps. So whatever you can give us, you know. Greatly appreciated. Yeah. So yeah, um, I think that wraps up our first show. Um, right. Thanks can for I, joining us. Can I use the whistle sound effect now? Yes, you can do the whistle. Okay. One, one second, guys. It's going to be good. Everybody has to wait for our, our, our final whistle here that Will's been working on. All right. Till right, next time, it. folks. Till next time. Thank <laughs> you.